Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to come and to remember, to remember that the church is, is yours, it's your idea, it's your idea for us to be in community with you. Um, it's a blessing that we get and that it only truly is, is worth its name when it's animated by your spirit uh, and operating in your power. And so we thank you for the things that you have done um, up to this point. We surrender this church back to you and ask that if anything would be true of it for the next eight years, that it would be that you would continue to work in it, that we would serve and sacrifice to that end, that we would not sneak in our own agendas, um, and that we might truly be able to say that we've seen the almighty and living God dynamically at work in our own lives, our families, in this community. I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So it's an interesting thing. Um, the way I've been processing an eight-year anniversary, the first interesting part about it is there's nothing unique about an eight-year anniversary. You can't make it spiritual. It's not a three, a seven, or a 10, or a multiple thereof. Um, all the spiritual numbers. Um, it's not like uh, in normal life where you have like 30 and 40 and 50 and all of those are kind of some watershed moment. Um, it's not like insurance, car insurance, where you turn 25 and it goes down. You know what I mean? Like there's nothing about eight-year church anniversaries that, that just make it sound really dynamic. But for some reason, this one for me has been the deepest in terms of my own wrestling and just passion for what it could be in terms of a, a tipping point or, or just a moment where we put a touchstone in the ground. I think there's a lot of things. We're not stewarding the Justice Conference anymore. World Relief has that and is stewarding it. And it's going to Australia and Hong Kong for a third year and, and Chicago this next year. But it's, it's moved kind of beyond. And, and uh, we've got a new pastor who begins this month um, after kind of a couple years of looking for an associate um, slash executive pastor. And so that's kind of new. We've got a search committee looking for uh, a youth pastor and, and pouring a lot of energy into that. One of the coolest things about that search committee is just watching those people gel as, as, as like a small group and just seeing passions kind of come to the, uh, to the mix. Um, there are new elders and Evan leading that search committee. There's a new lead team. And the lead team and the elders met for the first time kind of as a joint council uh, this last Wednesday and are really in a, in a season of discernment trying to listen to what would the next five or eight years look like. Uh, in a lot of ways, we've, we've kind of done a full revolution of ministry. We've, we've done a lot of things, seen a lot of things. And what would it look like to say at this point in time, what would the next eight years really look like? What, what would God be calling us to? Um, and so it's kind of this really interesting moment for me. It's an exciting moment. It's a scary moment because it really feels like the, the birth of a whole lot of things um, that I don't even know that I, I know the answer to. Um, eight years ago, eight and a half years ago when that dream document was written, there were a lot of specific dreams. Uh, I had a lot of dreams. The people, the group had a lot of dreams. Um, and it's a really interesting thing all of my dreams have been answered. I mean, I, I, could, I could walk away today and say that all of my dreams for planting a church in Central Oregon have been answered. Um, and I'm sad to say I don't want to walk away. I actually want to stay. And I want to see um, what a next season could look like where I have no ambition other than a, a strong, really strong desire to be surprised by God. Um, it's bad news maybe if, if, if you don't want to see um, what God could do to surprise us. If that excites you, maybe then it's good news, um, kind of dreaming about what it looks like going forward with open hands, with kind of a, a spirit of surrender and saying, there's really no agenda in this other than to see what God might be able to do with this next season. 
Um, but it, it's a really cool thing for me. So it's, a, it's an interesting moment to kind of come here and reflect. Some things just to help you understand how I'm viewing this. When Antioch started, Mary Joy was four years old. Mary Joy is my oldest daughter who I think is now five foot. Tamara doesn't like me to look at her because then you all know where she's sitting. Um, she's taller than Linda now. Um, and uh, I was going to say something. I don't know if I have permission to say it. Um, anyways, Mary Joy was four years old. I was 33 when Antioch started. And Twitter had just been created that July back in 2006, but nobody had heard of it. And we didn't even have our dog Peaches yet. <laughs> Which explains why, why my life was so different. I mean, it was a different... I mean, strangely enough, it was a different world eight years ago. It was a different world. And what was really charging me up, and I think this is where God was charging me up, that this is what, what really stirred my passions, was to create a church in, in that space and that time to, to try to create a spiritual community or be used in the creation of a spiritual community that would, would have something prophetic to say to Christianity at that point in time or that a lot of us had experienced up until that time. And let me give a story to help you understand what, what I was pivoting against because I think some of our best energy is when we know what we're not for. Does that make sense? And what I was not for was legalism. What I was not for was stale Christianity. What I was not for was religion that was some sort of spiritual piety or personal individualistic purity that, that allowed the more spiritual people to have pride in that. When I first started doing weddings, I was hanging out with a lot of pastors, uh, and I noticed this interesting trend. And, and remember, everything for me felt new. God really got a hold of my life at age 22 and I was playing catch up and I still feel like I'm playing catch up. Um, and, uh, and so when I was really hanging out with pastors, I always felt like the new guy to the, to the circle, the new guy to do a, a wedding for the first time, the new guy to kind of all that. And when I started doing weddings and got into conversations with people about wedding, uh, weddings, I found that most pastors, at least back then, had a scorecard, a scorecard of how many weddings they had done versus how many divorces had come from those weddings. And that really struck me as odd. And I, re I remember reflecting on it and thinking that the first wedding I did, I had a, a professor at, at Talbot Seminary tell me, this is what your job is on the Friday night when you're doing rehearsal. Your job is to protect everybody from the mother of the bride. <laughs> That's your job. And, I, and, and the reason you do that, and, and you gotta protect the bride from, from everyone else as well because everyone's gonna have opinions and she doesn't want on the day before her wedding to have to try to manage all of that. Like, affirm the ideas but but try to interact with that and navigate everyone else's opinions because it's her day and it's God's day in her life and the life of her husband as they they come together but there's there's something really beautiful about it being the bride's day okay guys don't don't grow up dreaming about the kind of tux they're gonna wear <laughs> guys don't dream up uh, about tuxes ever on any occasion. Um, but so it was an interesting thing as I reflected on pastors and their scorecards was like, how, how is it really about the pastor at, at all in that equation? Aren't you trying to serve these people and these families? Aren't you trying to bless them and use kind of what you have with pastoral background or even just the status from the state that you're able to do this and sign a thing? Aren't you trying to take yourself out of the equation 
and let it be about other people and serve that way. And then when, when it's done, you're, you're not even really in it. The good things that they do, you're not a part of. And the challenging things they go through, you're not really a part of. Like, you're not really a part of this at all. I mean, if there's any glue that holds a marriage together, it's, it's Christ or it's the Holy Spirit working in these people individually and in, in that marriage together. But we're, as pastors, not really a part of this, right? But so how does your scorecard equate to some kind of a pride thing as if your spiritual clout goes up because all of the people you married are, are cleaner than the messy people that, that have marriage difficulties. Like it's just, and I began to go, there's this weird thing that happens with, with religious people of all kinds that we, like the Pharisees in the, Old, uh, in the New Testament, we like to wear our stuff on the outside. For them, it was literally their clothing. They would wear hats and, and, and tassels and they would wanna sit in certain seats in the religious areas and, and it was all about kind of demonstrating their level of spiritual status. And I've, I felt like the keeping score thing with weddings was just really distasteful to me. And it, and it showed, I think, something that's much deeper that, that for us, religion often is, is a game about ourselves and, and a game about external righteousness and purity and scores and measuring up. And I, I, I just find that really distasteful. And when we began Antioch, it was religion that, that was all about the externals where families having problems couldn't feel comfortable sitting in a church, where guilt was a weapon that was used with no kind of grace or, or no God kind of in the equation that, that you do the sacrifices because that's faith and, and faith is really lived obedience and you do that because God's big enough and if you do that, God will bless. And this is an exciting narrative, but rather guilt used as a weapon of conformity. You have to do these things so that you'll look good, so that we'll look good, so that we can then take pride in how good we look. And, and how that just crushes people. It's a form of spiritual abuse. I was talking with Sam Adams, who teaches at Kilns College yesterday, about how many people we know that have been spiritually abused. And, and we're talking from mild all the way up to criminal. But, but abused by spiritual authorities in childhood and still cannot get past that even as they're adults now because of the trauma. Um, C.S. Lewis once said that of all, bed, ba, uh, of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. Of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. And so when we began Antioch, it was like, if there's anything that has to be true, that's at the core of what our desire is in starting something new in Central Oregon, it's, it has to be authentic. Like it has to be true and it has to be authentic and it has to wrestle with challenges and difficulties and it has to look at the mess and say in the middle of that mess, how can we, can we look to God and, and try to understand it as a part of the messiness of life and the brokenness of life, but also as something that through love and grace can be redeemed so that beauty can truly come from ashes. And even if it's not gonna be redeemed in the short run, that that's what we're there for is to bring comfort to the hurting, not judgment to those that are lost or confused. That's what drove me um, eight years ago. The interesting thing is, is that still drives me, but I think culture has changed a lot. Um, and so when I read this verse, uh, if you want, you can turn to Matthew, but this is a Matthew, uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight. but I'm gonna read it in the message so it'll, it won't sound anything like your, your translation. I don't use the message a lot, but when we began Antioch, we had a, like a brochure 
We're just trying to explain who we are and what we were about because, frankly, there was nothing to show anyone. There's a group of 15, 20 people at that point in time meeting in houses, and there was nothing to show anybody other than our desires or our passion, our dreams. That was like all we had. And this verse, this verse was used to kind of introduce our desires. And we took it out of this section in the message that Eugene Peterson uh, titled The Unforced Rhythms of Grace. And then he wrote this, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Then come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. For me, the first time Antioch booted up, that was all about um, pushing against legalism, heavy religion, duty. Uh, and, and as that part of it's still there, there's a new part of it that's grown up for me. Same words, are you tired, worn out? Uh, and then the ending words, keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I think there's something new about culture today that's different than eight years ago. Um, we're all crushed by the noise of life, of society, of information, of opinions, of news, of fears of how in flux everything is with careers and jobs and finances and economic markets in flux with religion and politics and what does that mean for values and culture going forward uh, with pluralism and secularism, the, the, just the, the lack of shared experience or language that you have with neighbors or friends or coworkers. You can't just say the gospels and expect that they know what you mean. You can't say the Sermon on the Mount and expect that people grew up in a church with grandma and they were taught the Sermon on the Mount or the Beatitudes. It's just so open and airy and exposed and at the same time so fast and furious and challenging and difficult. And I find myself in the middle of all of that just desperate for rest. When I talk to people, when I look at people, you can just see it in their eyes. I think we are a society that is so frenetic that we're just, um, there's smoke coming out of us. I just bought a, a book by Walter Brueggemann. Walter Brueggemann is in his 80s, um, and he's kind of this fun uh, guy that us pastors really geek out on. He's an Old Testament professor that was really kind of progressive and pushed a lot of buttons for many years. Um, but he, he now, when he speaks, he, he does these things with his hands and he's passionate and he looks like Yoda. Um, but he's just this dear, dear, dear uh, man. And he writes about how the Old Testament is relevant to today. And he always talks about empire. And us pastors, we like language like that empire and resistance and all that um and so he has this new book out and it's called sabbath as resistance do you, do you like that i do i bought it um tamra's reading it uh and uh i just like the juxtaposition of that that sabbath isn't some passive like day off Sabbath was God's command as a weapon against out-of-control living that has no end to, to the sink or swim that we, that we feel like we're living in. I mean, do you know what sink or swim means? What it means is, and he uses that phrase in the book. I've flipped through it, so I'm stealing this metaphor from him, but 
sink or swim, and he talks about sink or swim economics, and he gets into it, and it's all controver- very controversial with, with great-sounding language that puts, pushes buttons. But um, sink or swim means that when you're treading water, your head is just above the water, but you're slowly burning energy, and you can't sustain that. Anyone else ever thought about if a plane goes down in the ocean and you're treading water, how long could you actually tread water? I mean, seriously, anyone else ever thought about that? Uh, I think it comes because when I was younger, I was watching a Magnum PI episode where he was kayaking and that happened. Um, I watched a lot of Magnum PI. My daughters were just given a picture of me uh, back in the 80s by my mom and I had OP shorts on that that my, my daughter's called Daisy Dukes. And I, I quickly popped out of my chair and had to give him a lesson in, uh, in all things Magnum P.I. and Tom Selleckish and, and how cool O.P. once was. But I think all because of that Magnum P.I. episode, I, I, I picture that. I really tread water for a day or two. I don't know that I could. Um, but the point is, is it doesn't matter how, how in shape you are. Treading water, we can only go so long. And the minute we stop treading water, we sink. And that this idea that life is relentlessly difficult, to borrow a phrase from one of my Old Testament professors at Talbot, that, that life is relentlessly difficult. And the temptation is to strive to somehow get out in front of it, to somehow organize it, to somehow bring it uh, into kind of a structure or a system that will serve you, but to strive, to strive, somehow thinking that if we finally get out ahead of it, it'll stay all nice and tidy and neat and we'll be in control of it and it'll serve us. And and that's usually when we get hit with a, a bad medical report Uh, or an unexpected bill, or the car breaks down, and we go right back into that position of being behind, and we strive, and we strive, and we swim, and we swim, and we're always trying to get ahead. And Dave Talley said that the whole story of the Old Testament was this idea of, of life as relentlessly difficult. Life is messy, and that we either strive or we submit. And submitting is about working hard, but only up to a point. And then it, it, it resolves in trust in saying that ultimately the only thing that's gonna bring coherence to this life or groundedness to this life is gonna be our relationship with God that infuses us, gives us strength, and reorients our priorities and that even if circumstances don't ever submit to our will, that somehow there we find peace. That peace is not an external but an internal thing. And so I I resonated with that title of Brueggemann's book, Sabbath as this active uh, weapon. Sabbath as resistance against the tyranny of life. The tyranny of the pace, the tyranny of the chaos, the tyranny of the idea that somehow we have to master it or or wrestle it into submission so that then we're in control. And it's like, no, Sabbath is that once a week reminder. Not to take a day off, but to trust. And I think that as I look at the next eight years, what I get excited about is saying, how do we begin to make our faith our own? Not re-envision faith from legalism to grace, but in addition to that, how do we begin to actually make this a lived reality? I think the biggest takeaway for me in all of the recent hubbub about uh, abuse of power with a lot of famous pastors in America is this desire to say, I don't want to, to say to a congregation things that they need to believe or do. I want to wrestle with the congregation about the truths that we find in Scripture of how they can have a relationship themselves with God. Not mediated by me as if I'm some kind of priest, but that allows them you, us, to go boldly before the throne of God and find direct communication with our creator. And that 
if that's where you're getting your marching orders, there's no manipulation. There's no power games. There's no submitting to human authorities. There's no distance or disconnect in your faith, but your faith is rooted and grounded in the intimacy that you have with God. And I've heard recently from several friends, like as the, as as they talk with other people out there, people that have left the church uh, or moved on from the church or are struggling with the church, that this idea of a personal relationship with God has really fallen on hard times. Stop with me for a second and just think about that. What was promised for all those years of revival, kind of evangelism and revival theology? What was promised all those years? What was promised? You can have a personal relationship with God. But what was used to try to help people find that relationship with God? A transaction, methodological approach of a sinner's prayer that was a one-time thing that often was was divorced of discipleship or community or long-term engagement in Scripture. That we began to be us, those in authority, began to like to count conversions and total up those numbers and, and then to move on to the next group that needed to be harvested um, and the next group and, and then to be able to talk about that as, as nonprofits proliferated, nonprofits that were segmenting parts of the church. We'll do the evangelism, you the church, you do discipleship, and on and on and on. And one of the things when we started Antioch was to say the number one statistical form of bringing people to Christ, the number one statistical form of it is new churches. It's church planting. And so we wanted to bring people to a relationship with God, but not to leave them there but to, to bring discipleship into it so that people could grow in how to pray and to learn from others that were older in the faith. This is how you pray about different aspects of your life. This is how you deal with difficulties. This is how you deal with it when you're the only believing person in your family. This is how you deal with it when someone that you were leaning on falls morally or that friendship goes south and you have to find a way to say, that's not where my, my relationship with God ultimately is rooted or needs to be rooted. And, and mentors guide you kind of further or, or teach you how to read scripture. You read it in context and, and you, you read the whole thing and you begin to learn the story of what God's doing all the way through. But that somehow we promised personal relationship, but the church in America hasn't delivered it. So when we come into worship, and if we haven't talked to God all week, worship doesn't make sense. Because you know what worship is? It's just singing our prayers. That's what we get from the Psalms. Those are all songs. You read the Bible, you read the Psalms, they even talk about what instruments. Whoever was writing them was really opinionated. This one goes with the harp. This one with the lyre. Like, this, this one is for the choral director. Like, there's very specific intentions of how these songs are supposed to be sung so that the right emotion is carried because their prayers, their words, it's content that goes to God and, and that's the opinions. And so when we come in on Sundays and we sing with different instrumentation, with different moods or tones or keys or whatever, different arrangements, it's, it's with the intention that somehow that's just furthering a communication with God that's been going on all week. So I have friends that come to me and they say, how, how do you talk to people uh, and tell them the Bible actually does, because that's the argument, is the Bible never promised a personal relationship. God is distant, God is cold, he's not interested in our affairs, he's not certainly gonna deal with the problems I have or cure me of my diseases, and so I'd rather just keep God at arm's length. And so my friends ask me, how do you respond to that? And I respond, how do you explain the Psalms? How do you explain that whole book of the Bible? How do you explain Lamentations? How do you explain the, the, the example of Jesus of going up on hillsides after busy days and not sleeping or recharging his batteries but spiritually engaging his father in prayer and then telling his disciples, I have food that you know nothing of. 
I have a different source of power. And then his disciples go on, well, then teach us how to do that. And Jesus is not saying, well, you don't get that kind of relationship with God. I'm the son of God. See, that's reserved for me. But saying, no, this is how you do that. This is how you pray. And then theologically saying, we're going to be adopted into the, the family of God. We're going to be the body of Christ. God's going to send his Holy Spirit. Jesus says, it's better if I leave, because if I do, the Holy Spirit can come and literally indwell each of you and empower you and change you and grow you and know you so intimately that it says in Romans that the Spirit praying on our behalf gives utterances that we can't even understand. Like the Holy Spirit knows the full extent of our emotion and our challenge and our difficulty and what that truly feels like to us, that it doesn't feel fair. And we do feel victimized often. But the Holy Spirit knows, like knows that and prays on our behalf. And so when it says that we seek fellowship with the Spirit, we're not saying we just want to be identified with the Holy Spirit of God as some kind of like badge that I'm saved and I get to go to heaven. I want a seal stamped into me as if I'm wet wax and I want to have the proper insignia put into me. But when we say fellowship with the Spirit or walk with the Spirit, we're talking about a relationship. So when Paul says pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, be joyful always, he's really talking about a conversational relationship with God. And what I want to say, and I want to say it again and again, and I want to repeat it, and I want to sound like a broken record for the next eight years, is that what I want for us is that we all have the intimacy with God in our prayer life that keeps us going back to God in all circumstances, in all circumstances, with every decision, because that's whose opinion we want, and we actually believe that we can get it. See, prayer is not about answers. Prayer is about guidance and leading. How much of my conversation with Tamara is about her making decisions? If you know Tamara, she doesn't make decisions, so you're laughing at that right now. Um, like none of it probably is about making decisions. Our, our conversation with God is about relationship and knowledge and intimacy so that we begin to see things we wouldn't have seen otherwise. We begin to take on values that we wouldn't have taken on otherwise. That we begin to be aware of God's presence so that we don't feel alone. And you wanna know what the greatest reason I don't sin is in my life? It's, it's first and foremost a recognition that that would rip into the intimacy in the relationship that I experience with God and that's the source of my joy. I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna offer that up for any false pleasure. Does that make sense? And I desire that all of us would begin to find ways to live into a prayer life and a dynamic like that that makes us not dependent on pastors, that we as pastors are doing what Ephesians says we're gonna do and equipping the saints. Not just to go do tasks, but equipping the saints to grow into maturity and Christ-likeness in our faith. I think that's what's needed. I think when I look at it now, uh, it grieves me how confused I see uh, that people are. When I came to Bend 2004, the big thing, the big hubbub was the Da Vinci Code. Anyone read the Da Vinci Code? I read it one night. It's actually fascinating. It sucked me in. I've never read a book in one night. Um, maybe a short story. Uh, that book was fascinating, but it was poisonous. A little twist with facts here, a little bending of the truth there, a little persuasive rhetoric here, and it, and it literally had the effect of making people feel like, wow, it's really dumb to be a believer. And I don't want to be dumb. See that natural response there? And I watched it happening, and I remember having to interact with people and trying to to engage that struggle intellectually. 
the Da Vinci Code. Today, the, the modern form of that is all the friends we know that used to be Christians that are leaving the faith. Francis Schaeffer uh, had a son, Frankie Schaeffer. Frankie is not really an evangelical or a person that, that really believes in that personal relationship with God that his father preached. Some of that might have been the dysfunction in the family or challenges with a dad that was, was on that kind of a pedestal. I don't know. But it comes up because recently in the last two weeks, uh, Tony Campolo's son has very publicly come out as a humanist. He is a humanist chaplain at USC talking about how he was a Christian simply because they offered him loving community, hope, and, and a, a mechanism for changing the world, justice. And what he says is he bought all the dogma as the price of admission, not, not as the, the reason for his faith. It was the junk he had to, to swallow to get these other things, not the stuff that he actually believed and was willing to give his life to. And that, that slowly he came to the point where he could say, I, I'm not going to adhere to the junk. I'm going to say what we really need to center around is loving community, hope, and justice. As secular humanists that believe there is no life after death, there is no Jesus, there is no redemption, there is no grace, but we need to have loving community, hope, and a reason for changing the world. I mean, there's, it's a whole different sermon that I'm going to pick apart at a different time where we can borrow values that are firmly planted in midair or that we can take cut flowers and, and expect to run around the world with them without, without, without those flowers withering. And, and there's a whole lot I could go on with there. But the point is, is he's deconstructing his experience with Christianity in a way that's very, very poisonous to people that don't have a relationship, a very intimate relationship with God. He, as an insider, presents a lot of arguments that sound very persuasive and very familiar, just like the Da Vinci Code in a different, in a different way, and then makes it sound stupid or untrue. And people that listen to that, the natural response, again, just like with the Da Vinci Code is, I don't want to be stupid. I don't want to be like one of those people he's describing. Maybe I need to come out of the faith too. And it creates a crisis of identity or faith. Uh, is it just me? Have all your Christian friends stayed Christian? Have all the Christian people you knew 10 years ago grown and become more mature today than they were 10 years ago? Like, is it just me? Anybody? Thank you. What do we do with that? I think the first thing that has to be there is our own faith in God has to be more than cultural Christianity. It, let me say it again. It has to be more than cultural Christianity. I think in America, cultural Christianity meant that we do life the way we've been shaped to do life. We do these things and then we do Christianity too. We go to church, we raise our kids a certain way, we get involved in small groups, we read certain books, we listen to certain music, but that that's kind of this add-on to our life. And let me read this to you. I think we have to deconstruct that narrative and say that's a compartmentalized view of faith. And it won't hold up to the, to the frenetic pace of life today that says we have to strive to survive and it's not going to hold up to the Bart Campolos of the world that are saying you're deluded and you, you, you've, uh, you've believed a lie, you've bought into a lie and, and you're just kind of doing this wish fulfillment thing with regard to religion. I think rather than compartmentalize Christianity, we have to learn that faith is in every compartment of our life, every sphere of our life, every aspect of our life. We have to take our faith and say that it belongs in the mess of our finances. It belongs in the mess of broken relationships. It belongs, our faith, in the midst of, of all the change that we're going through. 
Our faith has to have something to say about the global issues and the national political shifts that are going on that we don't even know what to think about. But we just know it, we're confused. What does it all mean for, for reality? What does it mean for the human race? What does it mean for the things that we used to get excited about? Missions or relief and development. What, what, what does all this mean? And faith has to come in and, and interact in all of those areas of our life. And Christ has to be the center. It can't just be something we add to cultural Christianity. We need to hear from God personally. I asked Tamara... Um, we're going to run out of time, but I'll, I'll just hurry it. I asked Tamara, like, sum up the last eight years, like, for, for you. Um, by the way, um, my wife is responsible in my mind for almost every good thing that's happened in this church. Um, certainly every good thing that's happened through me. And you might say, oh, you're saying the obligatory nice thing about your wife. That's very symbolic and cute. But I knew me before her. <laughs> My dad knew me before her. And when he was going to move to Bend, he said, hey, I'm going to find a different church than yours. I think I can say this because it's one of the coolest things that ever happened in my life was that my dad came to Bend and chose Antioch. Not because it was the logical choice, but because God was doing something here. And it's been one of the greatest joys of my life to be able to serve with my dad, right? Um, Tamara's behind most every good thing that certainly um, has come from me and I don't know that she would know it. Um, and uh, most introverts don't get the praise and applause, right? But in subtle ways, they affect and they change everything. Um, so I asked Tamara, and Tamara says, you know, I don't know that I can look at any one thing the last eight years and, and dissect it as like this is what it means to me. It feels like being on a train that's been moving really, really fast, and it's really hard to see what's going on outside the windows. I thought about that analogy for a little bit. Kip and I went and visited the, the Hardens a couple years ago in Shanghai. And, we, and they, the, the Hardens put us on a train from Shanghai to Beijing. It's this fast train, 200-something miles an hour or, or whatnot. And it was a trippy experience. And all I could think about was in America, I'd be worried that some kid was going to put something on the tracks and this thing would derail. And so I kept thinking about what does that look like at 200 miles an hour. Um, <laughs> I think about treading water in the ocean. I think about trains derailing. I'm, I'm neurotic, um, and I admit it. So that, so that analogy that Tamara kind of put forward, that metaphor, was really visual and descript for me. And I started thinking about it and, it, and it began to make me very, very happy. Because when we started Antioch, the one thing we kept saying over and over was we wanted to be a movement, not an institution. We wanted to be a movement, not an institution. There's a difference. Movements are loose and they're wild. Um, just think of the civil rights movement. You, you, you pull a marcher out of the line at Selma and you say, what are the four core values of this movement? What's the mission statement and the vision statement? You know? Like, they probably can't articulate it. And if you ask two people, they'd probably articulate it differently, right? They weren't there because they had the institutional values in a certain way. They were there to join the movement because they understood the heartbeat of the movement. And they were radically committed to what it was about. Um, Richard Niebuhr said this, uh, the theologian, late theologian Richard Niebuhr, institutions can never conserve without betraying the movement's from which they proceed. The institution is static, whereas its parent movement has been dynamic. It confines men within its limits while the movement had liberated them from the bondage of institutions. It looks to the past, although the movement had pointed forward. Though in content the institution resembles the dynamic epic whence it proceeded, in spirit it is like the state before the revolution. 
So the Christian church, after the early, early period, often seemed more closely related in attitude to the Jewish synagogue and the Roman state than it did to the age of Christ and his apostles. Its creed was often more like a system of philosophy than like the living gospels. I was excited about Tamar's metaphor because I think what I'm bought into for the next eight years is one thing, and it's a desire to see God move in dynamic ways through his people. And that when we looked at it uh, and look at it and live it and see it in all of its messiness, that we kind of go, it doesn't matter if everyone gets the mission statement or the values. What matters is we can see that people are bought in, that they're totally committed, that they understand the heartbeat of what's happening in this community. They believe that God can use us and drive us forward. Do you know that everything that's happened in the last eight years began with 15 passionate people? It began with 15 passionate people. Rick Gerhardt and I were talking and it was like, um, in, in sports, this would be called a running start. If we look at the next eight years and dream about what could be, we're not starting with 15 passionate people. I hope we're starting with 100 or 200 or 300. But if we do less in the next eight years, it's because we weren't as passionate. I believe that God wants to continue to use us and I think we've got a running start. So I want to dream big enough dreams to go, how in the world could God shock us with what this community in Bend, Oregon can accomplish for the gospel in eight more years? Rick read the verse, but Ephesians 3 said, says this. It says, Now to him who is able to immeasurably, uh, do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I want to key in, I used to key in like, how much more God can do than what we dream. That used to be like, where my idealism would, would live. You guys have probably heard me teach that verse before, right? It's like, wow, that's pretty exciting. You mean like we can ask for more? Like it's like telling a kid at Christmas they can ask for double, right? Like it doesn't take much to get excited about asking for more. But listen to the back half of the sentence. God can do more according to his power that is at work within us. The word work there is energeo, where we get our word energy. God's power is the energy in us to be his people set apart unto him for his purposes. It's not that God does massive things. It's that God works through broken and simple people and through them does massive things. In that dream document, you heard the word God still moves mountains in the back end of it. And I've begun to think based on this whole idea of, of God's energy in us, the energeo, um, that like my, my friend Shane Claiborne who says that sometimes when we pray for God to move mountains, he hands us a shovel, that God really does wanna work through us like he brought the Israelites out of slavery through Moses or into the promised land through Joshua or that he raised up a king through David who by faith was willing to grab a couple smooth stones and run hard at a giant. That somehow God always wants to move through people of faith that believe his power is great enough when coupled with our submission and our belief and our trust to do things greater than what we would have believed was possible at the outset. It's that part that's really intriguing to me. Not that we sit back and go, we wanna take a spectator seat and get our popcorn and our binoculars and go, what's the next great thing God's gonna do at Antioch or through Antioch, but that we as Antioch say, God, I'm surrendered to your purpose. Second Timothy says this, 2 Timothy 
chapter 2, verse 20, in a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. This is a Jewish system where in the temple of God, you had things that were consecrated. They were baptized or sprinkled and cleansed ceremonially so that those, those articles were not common, but they were set apart unto the priests and unto to God that they're used for spiritual priestly purposes in his house. And what Paul is saying to Timothy is the people that say, my life could be just an average life for common purposes, but I want to consecrate it. I don't want just common. I want to consecrate it. I want to set my life apart unto God. What I simply am doing is not asking God to save me, but I'm really having a normal conversation with my master and saying, all that I have, all that I am, all that I dream of really comes second to you. You orchestrate it all together, like serve your purposes and make my dreams come true all at once. Blow my mind, God. But in all of it, it belongs to you. And what Paul is saying is like the people that you can get, the 15 energetic people or whatever it might be, the people you can get that literally are gonna say, my life belongs to you. I'm gonna consecrate it, set it apart for your holy or your spiritual purposes. Those people are gonna be instruments and used by the master to do amazing things. God can do all we, uh, all we ask and imagine, and more than that, he can blow our minds by going above it. Through his power at work, energeo, in us and through us, as we, the body of Christ, are the incarnation that moves into this world to bear witness of an almighty God. I desperately don't want to lead Antioch Church. I desperately want to join a couple hundred people full of the energy of God, collectively as a community, exploring, God, what would you have us do and be? In the simple decisions of our life, all the way to the big decisions of whether we're going to sell everything and move somewhere. All of it, as we surrender and bear witness to you. I'll die for that. I'll die for that. 